Welcome to the Process Breakdown Podcast, where we talk about streamlining and scaling operations of your company, getting rid of bottlenecks, and giving your employees all the information they need to be successful at their jobs. Now, let's get started with the show. Chad Franson here, co-host of the Process Breakdown Podcast, where we talk about streamlining and scaling operations of your company, getting rid of bottlenecks, and giving your staff everything they need to be successful at their job. Past guests include David Allen of Getting Things Done and Michael Gerber of The E-Myth, and many more. This episode is brought to you by Sweet Process. Have you had team members ask you the same questions over and over again, and this is the 10th time you spent explaining it? There's a better way and a solution. Sweet Process is a software that makes it drop-dead easy to train and onboard new staff and save time with existing staff. Not only do universities, banks, hospitals, and software companies use it, but first responder government agencies use them in life or death situations to run their operations. Use Sweet Process to document all the repetitive tasks that eat up your precious time so you can focus on growing your team and empowering them to do their best work. Sign up for a 14-day free trial, no credit, no credit card required. Go to sweetprocess.com. That's sweet like candy, S-W-E-E-T, process.com. <clears throat> During his professional career, Dave Davies has been an Army officer with the 82nd Air- Airborne Division. Senior Manager with Pricewaterhouse's Management Consulting Group and IT Executive, the COO with Sales Performance International, and is currently Chief Operations Officer at Force Management. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me. So you are the COO with Force Management. Can you tell me a little bit more about what uh, Force Management does? Yeah, so Force Management is a uh, sales consulting and training firm and we, we uh, address large uh, enterprises, you know, our target audience or our sales teams. Um, we, we span all industries. We have a, a concentration in high tech that, you know, it's across multiple industries, typically enterprise type companies. And what we do is we work with the, the heads of sales and, and, and CEOs to up the game on, you know, their sales teams. And, you know, typically you know, we kind of define ourselves by the problems we solve. And, you know, if I'm a CRO of a, a large enterprise uh, sales team, global sales team, the problems that I encounter are, are predictable. And they tend to fall into you know, two major buckets. You know, the way I either engage with my customers or my own internal management operating rhythm. And so the offerings that we have are meant to up the game. You know, the ultimate uh, measure is you know, productivity, rep productivity, and that could be measured in different ways, like ARR or, you know, revenue growth, whatever, whatever that is. And so the offerings are geared towards either the message, you know, what do I say? How do I convey, uh, articulate my value and differentiation in a way that's going to resonate? What do I do? You know, my sales process, how do I qualify deals, things like that? And that's on the that's the engagement side, customer facing, outside in. On the inside out, the management operating rhythm, it's my planning function, right? That that cascading series of, of planning functions, territory, account, opportunity, pipeline building, forecasting, from a planning, what's my plan to hit the plan? And then the, you know, what about the talent, the talent aspect of it? How do I attract and retain folks who are going to do well in this? you know, this system of accountability that's part of my go-to-market 
So that's what we do. So we do, you know, it's customized. You know, we have we have offerings that are standardized, but they're they're tailored because they have to be. And so there's a consulting aspect of it that that makes it relevant on the front end and makes it stick on the back end. Those are those are the bookends of the methodology. Then right in the middle is the actual training. So like this is a busy season for us, for instance, because a lot of the uh, high tech companies are having their SKOs. So they, you know, we kind of feature prominently in, in that space as well. So it's just in a nutshell what we do, Chad. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. So what why would a typical client kind of kind of come to you guys? What situation would they be in? A lot of times, it, um, it, it, a lot of times, what we find is I'll just take the, the high tech space. A lot of these cool high tech companies, you know, they started out, you know, perhaps with an algorithm. You know, a couple of brilliant folks, you know, came out of uh, you know MIT or you know they came out of Stanford and they, they came up with an algorithm because there was a you know a problem in the market that wasn't being addressed. And a lot of our clients are cyber oriented. And so their initial target buying audiences were, you know, the engineers, right? Like maybe a cyber engineer, a developer, somebody like that. But what happens is over time, their solution set grew in terms of the scope of the problem that they can solve. The competition caught up because it was such a successful thing. And so they started out perhaps in a product-led growth mode, right? If I can just get this stuff out there, the developer community will just talk about it. They'll buy more seats. But as I'm going to go to the enterprise, right, because my product-led bottoms-up strategy just wasn't getting me where I needed to, to get to, and the signature levels rose. So now I'm in a C-suite, right? I'm not at the manager-director level. I'm not at the individual contributor. I'm at the C-suite. And so when I was talking to engineers, I could just run the demo, right? Run the demo. They're going to love it. They're going to buy it. They're going to tell their friends, right? And But it doesn't necessarily work that way at the C-suite, right? They want to know what the business outcome is going to be. Like what are the, the what we call a positive business outcomes that are going to result from me buying this software, right? What's the ROI? And so at that level, they're thinking in terms of either up my revenue, reduce my costs, or mitigate the risk of a bad thing happening. And so I had this sales team that was geared towards talking about the eloquence of the features and the functions. And that really resonated with, with a certain level of buying audience. But that same message needs to be tailored and morphed up the chain of command to resonate with the C-suite. But that's not how I train my folks. I gave them product training. So one of our typical use cases is we're moving from selling on product features and functions to selling on business value. So help us retool our sales team in mass to be able to deliver that higher message. So we have a methodology where we, you know, we work through it. We have sales, marketing, product, product marketing senior execs, and we, we get them all aligned around what this new message is going to be, you know, what's going to resonate based upon what has worked and not worked in the past. And that's the customization part of it. And then we take the organization through a transformation where, okay, don't forget how to teach, talk to this audience, but now we're going to build upon that so that I can connect the dots across the different people involved in the buying process then that's the training aspect of it. Then we have a series of things from a sustained perspective 
to make sure that they get their ROI realization. And it's adopted in the short term and sustained in the long term. And it's, it's really, I mean, th these are change management endeavors. I mean, one of the things I learned when I was in systems, Chad, you know, I started out, you know, kind of naively, I started out as a coder in life, right? And so I'm, as I'm running projects, I'm thinking, okay, this is a technology implementation. We're slamming in this ERP or we're building this, this custom app. It's a technology thing. And, and I wised up pretty quickly. And then I'm like, well, no, it's it, technology's part of it, but it's also a process. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a process kind of a thing that is enabled by the technology. So then I wised up a little bit more and I figured out this is a change management endeavor, right? We are changing the way that people do things. And so if you look at it as a change management project and you understand how people react to change, right, it's almost like the grieving process, you know, they're in de denial and anger and bargaining and eventually mental acceptance, right? And so if you look at a systems project like that, you're going to have an easier go of it because you look at the human element of it, then you figure out the process element of it, and then the technology is almost a detail. So, you know, technology projects are really about the technology. They're about the change of behavior. Well, it's kind of the same way over on this side of the fence. And, and a lot of the, the practices that I drew upon in the very beginning as we were, you know, building this thing up from scratch, I drew upon the systems development experience and just applied it in the direction of, you know, sales enablement consulting. Because it's the same concept. It's all project-based. It involves a change of behavior. And that's what you have to understand. Like, what are the ramifications of taking somebody who's been quite successful selling one way, you know, product features and functions, I set a new expectation that's a little bit scary because now I have to go a few rungs up and I'm looking eye-to-eye -eye with the C-suite. There's a change management element involved with that. And so you have to you, you look at it from that perspective, then the training methodology becomes the detail. But it's really, we look at it as, you know, there's mindset, process, tools, and content. And so it's like a it's a multi-front war to try to pick up an organization from one state and move it to another you know, with as many people as possible. And, you know, it's kind of a normal distribution, right? There's some people on the front end of the, the, the curve, the leading end of the curve, who are just kind of doing it naturally, right? And this just makes them consciously competent. It puts a vocabulary to what they do naturally. You have the tail end that's really never going to get there, and then you got to figure out what to do with them. But I have these 60% center of mass that if you can just get their heads wrapped around this, give them some examples and let them ease into it, you can really move the center of mass up to what you, you know your superstars are doing. That makes a big impact on the sales productivity. And that's what the methodology does. It gets alignment around things, the message, the process, the plan, the people, and then it makes it approachable to the masses. Is really what we, we slow down the behaviors of the greats in a way that people who are still learning and developing can emulate. And that's that's really the, the power of it, but it's just straight up change management stuff, Chad. When you approach change, when you approach kind of, you know, change can be, when you're a coder, you just write, if you know the code, you just write write right. new code, but people can be more, more difficult to code. <laughs> how how right. do you kind of approach that change? 
or yeah. convince them that this is, you know, we need a new behavior here? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you kind of use our message. We use our messaging offering. So we have a messaging offering of like, how do I convey value and differentiation in my products in a way that is going to resonate with what you care about? Well, you can use that internally too. Like if you, I mean, you can face it towards a customer, but you can also face it towards somebody who's undergoing change. And so what you try to do is you, you try to attach what you're doing to something that they care about, right? And it's, it, it, you gotta, you know, do the old fashioned, start with the why. Let's get rallied around why we're doing this. What's the purpose for what we're doing this? What does the change look like? And then how are we actually gonna do it? If you go right to the how, but they don't understand the why, then it's hard for them to rally around it. And there's typically a why for the greater good, then there's the why for the individual person, right? And, yeah. and I think that, you know, I heard this one, you know, somebody, you know, back in my systems day, you know, gave me this little reminder that I always have rattling through my head, is that if you want people to, to change, uh, and you want to be have that be as, as smooth as possible, you, you have to make sure that they're informed of, you know, what the change is in the first place. They are included in the architecture of what that change is going to be. Then they're in control of the pace with which it occurs. It's the three eyes. And, and what I find is, is if I go too quickly to what we're actually doing without setting the context and hearing people's concerns. If I get too far, too many steps ahead, I'm going to have to backtrack anyway. So I might as well take the time to, to set the context. And, you know, you've heard the expression in business, follow the money, right? Follow the money. In this context, the way I look at it is follow the fear, like follow the fear, right? So what I try to do is, you know, whenever you're taking a group through some kind of a, an exercise and you get all the who moved my cheese kind of stuff going on, I like to look at on a person by person basis, what are they afraid of? Like whenever they hear this thing, I mean, there's always the good things that are gonna happen, but you know, as humans, we're kind of fear driven. So what is this person afraid of? You know, are they afraid then they're not going to be able to hang in the new world? Are they afraid, you know, that they're going to fail? Are they afraid that they're going to be exposed? Are they afraid that they're going to, you know, make a buffoon of themselves when they talk to the C-suite? Like, what, what is it? What's driving it? Because once I understand their fear, kind of at the molecular level, then I can calm that fear down, right? And a lot of times they don't just say it. You know, people just don't say, I'm afraid of this, it comes out sideways as something else, like an anger or resistance. But underneath each one of those tends to be some kind of an insecurity, some kind of a fear. And if I can figure out what that is, then I'm talking human to human instead of ego to ego. And then you can find common ground. Let's find common ground around the why, distill that down to the what, and then people were a little bit less attached to the how if they're on board with the why and the what. Um, I don't know if you ever read this, this book. It's a really amazing book by uh, Colin Powell called My American Journey. And I think he's just, he's an amazing guy, right? He's, he's like one of my heroes. I got a bunch of heroes, but he's one of them. And he had these 13 principles of, and he has an amazing story, just his life, what, what he made of himself with where he started. And he has these 13 principles 
in the back of his book that he writes. And one of them, I think it's number three, is, you know, never let your ego get so tied to your position that when your position goes, your ego goes with it. And when you look at that within the context of, you know, the, you know, a, a change management, sales transformation or whatever, what you find is people will stake out a position on something. They so attach their ego to that that they may even realize in the conversation that they're wrong. Their position is not wrong or is wrong, but their ego is so tied to it that they they hold on to it. And so there's you know what people say, it's their position, but then it's what is their true interest. And that interest can either be in a gain or a lot of times it's in a fear. But so that if I understand that, then we can talk person to person instead of ego to ego. Because whenever you're talking ego to ego, that's whenever these you know ridiculous you know flare-ups tend to occur. So there's a lot of psychology in it. Uh, and I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> but it's I'm kind of a psychologist through the school of hard knocks, sure. right? Made a lot of mistakes. So let's talk about your role as a COO. How many people are part of your team? Over yeah, I've got about 50 right now. And, and so what COO means at force management is really uh, watching over the way that we implement these projects. And we have a we have a repeatable process for the way that we, we implement these, these projects. They're typically, you know, two or three months tip to stern. And so, uh, you know, we have a series of workshops to make it relevant. We have the actual training events to set the expectation. Then you have a series of sustained activities that make it you know, adopted in the short term and sustained in the long term. And so if you look at what's required in order to do that, it's pretty much of a classic consulting methodology in the way that the team is structured. So you have a few folks that are you know, more senior in their career you know, and they look and talk like me. And we're the ones that you know facilitate the workshops and the different training events. Then you have folks that are the consultants, you know, and they do a bunch of things. You know, they do project management, they do the curriculum development, and during the workshops, they're you know they're, they're breakout coaches. And so you have this kind of a chain of command, a classic consulting pyramid structure. And so what I tend to watch over is the delivery of those services. Right, both from the initial role, the training, the sustain. And then, you know, we have a lot of feeds obviously into product development because you're, you know, as you're taking your basic service offerings to market, you're doing a lot of on the fly product development in the field, right? Kind of paid product development. And that, that creates a feedback loop to the gold standard curriculum over time. And then the team also works hand in hand with the sales organization as pre sales engineers sales architects, and which, which is what it, it makes it really cool because just the size of our company, we have the luxury that the delivery team, the one who's actually implementing the services, are also the architects during the sales cycle. So you never architect something that you know you can't deliver, right? It's like packing your own parachute, right? You pack it differently. You pack a parachute differently if you know that you're the one who's going to have to jump it, right? And then you have that, that, that closed loop feedback to product. So we have these consultants who are kind of the center of the universe. And so they are architects, they are delivery folks, and then they, they're part of the volunteer fire department that helps the product development. So you have that virtuous triangle between the way I sell it, the way I deliver it, and then the evolution 
of the, the core curriculum. And it's you know, a really cool model that works. And it, like I said, it's a luxury because of our size. You know, you get a lot bigger, those things tend to delineate out and all of a sudden you give birth to a silo and you have to figure out how to, how to do it. But right now those things all kind of work together in tandem. What do you kind of look for when you're trying to fill, you know, a consultant role? Yeah. So the consultant, so the consultant, if I think about the facilitators, you know, people like me, you're, you're looking for some foundational attributes and you're also looking for an experience. Like, did, did I actually do something like this before? When we're looking for the consultants who are a little bit more junior in their career, when we first started up and we were starting to ramp up you know, the company about you know, 15 years ago, we made a bad mistake of trying to hire people that had done certain things. They'd done instructional design, they'd done career development or whatever. And we were just like messing up and we didn't know why. But then we got it right a few times and we're like, well, what's the difference? And I was on a flight back from San Francisco one time and I'm like, we got to crack this code. So I'm going to take six hours to put down what the bright spots are. If we look at the bright spots of the people who survived versus those who didn't, what did they have in common? So we came up with this, this profile, this yardstick. And what we found was it wasn't so much what you did, it's who you are. Right. So we came up with this yardstick and it had different attributes to it, you know, like like smart, um, you know, abundance mindset, you know, grit, uh, technologically savvy, you know, intellectually curious. So it was these attributes or, which were more who you are rather than what you've done. So we printed these out in the beginning and we just literally handed them to our friends and family network. And we said, do you know someone who's like this? Not somebody who did this, somebody who's like this. And then all of a sudden, be like, oh, yeah, my niece, my nephew, my brother, my next door neighbor. Because if we can get somebody that has those attributes to them, right, they're, they're smart, they have grit, they have an abundance mindset, high EQ, stuff like that, we can teach them how to do the trade. But, you know, we, we can't put in what God left out, right? If it's, not, if it's not there, we can't put those foundational attributes in. We can build the skills, we can build the knowledge, but we can't, you know, we can't change how you grew up, mm -hmm. right? So we look for, like, I like to look for people who um, it, it persevered through some adversity in their life. Right. Something they, they had to work for something and it wasn't just given to them. And so that's the grid aspect of it. You have to think on your feet a lot, call a lot of audibles. So reasoning skills are very important. So smart, smart is good. And what I find is organizations are at their best when we're in a state of empathy and I am empathizing with what you're going through and you are empathizing with what I'm going through. And I can think about somebody other than myself, right? There's some concept, there's some purpose that's bigger than myself. And so therefore high EQ and somebody that has an abundance, you know, versus a scarcity mindset, that's always a good thing. And in our company, you know, DE&I community service is, you know, one of the pillars that we live by. There's really three pillars that the company was, was founded on. And it's uh, servant-based leadership is really the, the, the core. And that manifests itself in, in three directions. 
you know, it's it's service to customers, service to employees, and service to the community. And so I like to see people who resonate with that service mindset, you know, servant leadership mindset. And, you know, people who like when I'm interviewing somebody and they say, hey, I read on your website, you know, all this community service work, you do this pro bono work, and that really resonated with me. That's a good thing for me. You know, when I hear something like that. And so, like I said, that's what that's what we look for. And so for each one of the roles, whether we're a consultant, a facilitator, whatever, uh, we have a success profile for what that looks like. You know, what are the what are the people who really do this well? What are they doing? You know, and and and, uh, and if we slow down their behaviors, how can we you know replicate that with with other folks? So you come up with this gold standard of a of a success profile, and then if you think about the talent management life cycle that surrounds it, you know, there's the intake, you know, the sourcing and the recruiting. And I get some, and, and, but it's not just in general, it's against that success profile. And we have a general rule of thumb that we use. It's the 30, 30, 30, 10 rule. Like if I'm conducting an interview and, uh, and if I look at the anatomy of my decision, 30% of the anatomy in my decision should be, you know, this person's background, like who are they, what have they done and what's on the resume, right? 30% is, what happened during the screening process in the interview? We asked some, some questions, we got some answers. They asked some questions, we gave them some answers. What did that interaction feel like? 30%, the third 30% is we have an online assessment we do that tests for things like reasoning ability, independence, you know, different attributes. Uh, that's the data-driven aspect of it. And then 10% is gut feel. Right, ten percent. I just my intuition. A lot of times, what can happen is that gets reversed. I'm making a hiring decision based upon ninety percent gut feel because I like the person or they're like me, it, and I may not need someone who's like me. I may need someone who's the opposite of me to balance me out. And then ten percent objectivity, and that that gets you in trouble. A lot of mishires. So we try to you know make it a little bit more data driven. So that's the recruiting aspect of it against that success profile. Then there's the onboarding, like how do we get time to productivity as short as possible? What experiences can we put people through? So what are the knowledge, skills, and experiences they need to go through to get proficient? And then, and that's against the success profile, right? And then I, then I do a performance assessment, which we, we do career development, more so than performance assessment, it's career development. That's against that success profile. And then coaching and developing, that's against the success profile. And then the succession planning, which is kind of the, the last stage of the, of the life cycle. So it, it requires getting a common definition of success. Then everything in that talent management life cycle, the recruiting, the onboarding, everything has to be against that objective standard, right? And that's how you get some process consistency in how you're developing people. And, and, and so, you know, in my role, Chad, I, I, I do things, like I run workshops, I do COO-like things, but what, my number one priority has to be on the, the career development of folks, right? That's my number one priority. So we are, as a result of what we do, we are a factory of career development and leadership development. Because if you, if you get that right, then we will run good projects. 
if we run good projects, we will get good customer results. They will be happy. They will buy more. They will refer us and there'll be good case studies. But it, you I think you have to work it forward from the employee development rather than backwards from just the revenue generation side because we're a, it's a people business. So, you know, how else would you do it? Yeah, you know that sounds like that sounds like a, a fantastic kind of um, system. I have one more question for you, but first, how, how can people find out more about force management? Uh, www.forcemanagement.com. You know, you that is a very detailed and a, a fantastic system. How did you kind of you know you've had you've got you know years and years of professional experience? How did you kind of come up with that model? It's straight up military. Is that I, the only thing I'm doing now? is a civilian context for everything I learned in the military. It's, it's, it's all it is. I mean, you know, the, the, the development, always building leaders, you know, as soon as you learn something, you pass it on. It's just, it's just military. That, that's where I got it. But it's, you know, it, it's a civilian context. Like we don't run around in uniforms saluting right, each other right. or anything, but it's like a lot of the concepts are just bringing forward from the military, which has thousands of years of, you know, people management experience to it. So yeah, you know, you mentioned, that, that leads me to one more question. You mentioned Colin Powell and being one of your heroes. You said you had some other heroes. Can you give me an example of one or two others and maybe uh, what you incorporate from them that you might've learned? Yeah, I like um, um, Daniel Pink. You know, when, when I think about uh, Daniel Pink, I don't know if you read the book Drive by Daniel Pink. Uh, he has this this model that that he says, you know, what motivates people, especially who are in a knowledge worker, you know, kind of a, a mode. And he has this acronym of, of PAM, which is purpose, autonomy and mastery. Right. So if I want to motivate somebody who is in one of these knowledge worker type jobs, the first thing I need to do is there needs to be a purpose that people can rally around besides just revenue generation or you know, maximizing shareholder value, you know, who, who can get emotionally attached to that, except the board, right? But there has to be some higher level purpose. And so especially with a, a lot of our workforce are younger folks, right? And so we have a lot of, you know, millennials, Gen Zs and things. And so what really motivates them, you know, you have to have the hygiene factors, money, benefits, things like that, but it's feeling connected to a higher level purpose, a social cause, you know, DEI or you know, whatever that, that cause may be, you know, community service things. And that that's a big thing, right? And, and so that's what gets me the emotional boost. And it's the thing that, you know, on a you know, Monday morning where I got to get up at five in the morning and go get on a plane, it's kind of that purpose that makes me feel good about that. Because I know like we're generating this revenue, which goes into our community service bucket. You know, we're going to feed some people or we're going to educate some people. We're just going to lift some people up. You know, that's kind of what gets you going. So purpose is the first part of it. The second thing, the A in PAM is autonomy, right? I have some control over the, the way in which things happen. I'm not being micromanaged and I am giving a lot of authority at an early age, right? Now, in order to, to, to do that, you have to watch your risk threshold, right? You can't have autonomy if you don't have risk because if people are gonna develop, 
they have to make mistakes. You know, I've had career development sessions where, you know, I've had to tell people who have a fear of failure, you're not making enough mistakes, right? You're playing it too safe. And we never learn from our successes. We only learn from the things that we hose up, right? So I've actually had, I've had to give people advice. I need you to screw some things up because if you're not screwing things up, you're not learning, right? Now you can't keep screwing them up, but like, you know, it's like this, the, our business isn't life or death, right? We don't have bullets flying at us. And so we can always fix things, right? So, and that's what the leaders do, provide a safety net so that someone screws it up, you can recover and the, the, the customer isn't impacted. But I need you to screw some things up so you can learn from it. So, and that contributes to autonomy, right? Because otherwise then you have the zero defect mindset and people aren't learning, right? And they're afraid to make a mistake. And you know, the, all the decisions are top down rather than decentralized the place where they belong. So autonomy is the second factor, that's the A, and then the M is mastery, right? I wanna achieve mastery in something that is important to me, right? And that's also very important to younger generations, right? I wanna you know, develop my skills and on day one, perhaps be the CEO and, you know, it's, but it's, it's, these things are very important. So that's really my navigational aid is, and I think Daniel Pink did a good job in drive putting that out, you know, purpose, autonomy, and, and mastery. Okay. I think leaders, I, I mean, I'd be, you know, I, I spent a lot of time reading and just, you know, sure. looking at different things that are out there. I like, you know, Leaders Eat Last. I think that's a good book, a good case study for, mm -hmm. you know, newly minted um, leaders. I like the, the the concept that I think they, I think it was in that book, you know, sometimes I get these things confused, or it was a Collins book, but, they asked the, the commandant of the Marine Corps, how do you build Marines? Like, how do you guys do that? Because you, I mean, you crank them out, right? And once a Marine, always a Marine. And his response was, was wonderful. He said, we don't, we don't make Marines. They're already mar Marines. They were Marines from birth. We just bring that out of them and we tell them it's okay to be that way. Right. And I think that's the way it is, you know, with, with, you know, as career development, I think, is that way as well. You know, it's in there. It just may not be fully developed. And, and so our job as leaders is to bring that out and to foster an environment where, you know, that can thrive. So but Pam, that's a good acronym, you know, purpose, autonomy, mastery. That that keeps me honest. And, it, you know, it, it, it provides a priority in my day. Right. Or is everybody. You know, is everybody getting that, you know, because when they get that, then you beat the odds on attrition whenever you whenever you care about people. Because, you know, from my perspective, you know, if it, it, someone asked me this the other day, like we were in a leadership forum in the, in the, inside the company and they were like, well, and I was asking them, I always like to ask newly minted leaders, what kind of leader do you want to be? Like if you were to articulate what kind of a leader you are is a statement of purpose, what would that be? And there's no right answer. It's just, what is it for you? Because it's different for others. So someone asked me the same thing. I said, for me, leadership, I've evolved it over the years, but what it is now, it's, it's fairly simple. And it's, it's, it's two vectors. The first vector is that I wanna slow down my behaviors in a way that I can teach to other people who want to learn it 
So I can shorten their learning curve to a fraction of what it took me. That's kind of my value prop to them. Like I'm going to try to get you to where you want to get to in a way that's faster than you could perhaps do on your own. And in order to do that, I can't just say, hey, look at me and do what I do. I mean, that's not helpful. I have to be able to break it down so that people can emulate it. So that's my first job as a leader is to slow down my behaviors and teach things to, to others so that they can grow. And then the other vector for me is to care about them significantly more than I care about myself, right? So every day I wake up and I think, are they okay? Like we have 50 souls that are entrusted to us in this department, are they okay, right? Are they, are they getting what they need? you know, from a purpose, autonomy and mastery perspective. And I think if you do that, for me anyway, I found that if I do those two things, everything else is a detail. Yeah. Wow. Uh, those are some great insights, great thoughts. And uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing all of those with us. I really appreciate your time today, Dave. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate Have it. Have a good day. So long, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Process Breakdown Podcast. Before you go, quick question. Do you want a tool that makes it easy to document processes, procedures, and or policies for your company so that your employees have all the information they need to be successful at their job? If yes, sign up for a free 14-day trial of Sweet Process. No credit card is required to sign up. Go to sweetprocess.com, sweet like candy, and process like process.com. Go now to sweetprocess.com and sign up for your risk-free 14-day trial. Hi, this is Owen, the CEO and co-founder here at Sweet Process. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast interview, uh, actually, you know what I want you to do? Go ahead and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That way we get more people aware of you know, the good stuff that you get here on this podcast. Again, go on to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Looking forward to reading your review. Have a good day. That's my